fuck, I fucked up. What a start. What a start. Are you recording? Yeah, I'm recording. Okay. We'll clip all that out, don't we? Nah, man, let's keep it in. It shows that we're humans and not AI. Well, I prefer AI. Um, Hello, everyone. This is the Radius of Reason podcast. Radius of Reason podcast. (laughs) I'm LaVon, and I'm here with my co-host, Andre. Hello, Devon. How are you doing? Doing well. How are you, Andre? I'm all right. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Crunched down on this couch between two microphones on a coffee table. It is quite the setup. It is. You know, the Beatles had to start somewhere. Not this low, though. Not this low. Not this low. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's, let's get straight to it. So the topic uh, today is censorship and free speech and all that good stuff. Andre, please take it away. So today we really wanted to discuss a particular element of censorship and free speech, and that's specifically censorship on social media. So on January 8th, 2021, Twitter suspended the at real Donald Trump Twitter account. Banned it, I should say. This was in response to Donald Trump's tweets that Twitter claimed incited uh, some of the events on Capitol Hill on January 6th that's been kind of labeled as the Capitol Hill riot in our political discourse. Um, Twitter specifically referenced that Donald Trump's behavior on the platform violated the glorification of violence policy Twitter has established. And they released a statement where, quote, they said, we have permanently suspended the at real Donald Trump account due to the risk of further incitement of violence. Now, of course, this claim uh, reinforces a lot of the arguments that have been made about the former president's behavior leading up to and after uh, the January 6th riots. Donald Trump used Twitter to spread his message that he believed that the election results were not legitimate. And also made statements that he's not going to recognize the Joe Biden presidency and that he won't be attending uh, the inauguration. Uh, Twitter, among many other commentators, pointed to this as a huge instigator for the events that occurred on January 6th, where protesters turned to rioters and ended up storming Capitol Hill. Uh, But this really kind of pushes forward a greater conversation about where things like Twitter stand in our popular discourse. Is this uh, still a private entity that has a free hand in who uses their platform and who they can include or exclude? Or has Twitter and other social media platforms, have they turned into a greater public utility? Is Twitter a critical instrument to democracy? Does it enable campaigns, political participation? Is Twitter a public square? Has it replaced that space where hundreds of years ago, a town crier might be issuing out statements relevant to citizens and their understanding of their community around them? And really, depending on how we treat this, it's really going to impact how we treat the concept of censorship. But regardless, this is all part of a greater trend of deplatforming. We've had countless other accounts suspended since Donald Trump, and we've had countless other debates come up about what information can and cannot be shared on Twitter and on social media. The question we're really trying to get at today is, is this justified? Can a social media company block certain expressions on their platforms? And if this is justified, do the current laws we have 
protect free speech effectively and effectively discern when censorship can be taking place? Or do we need to do more as a society and a polity to combat disinformation? So I'm going to pass it over to Levan, my esteemed co-host, to really get into the predominant view of the censorship debate. Thanks, Andre. Uh, I don't know why I said thanks. This is not nearly as formal as that would make it. it did, yeah. <laughs> One thing before I get into uh, kind of the specifics here, uh, we're, we're kind of just taking this approach of steel manning arguments. And everyone, I think, is pretty familiar with what a straw man is. So an example of that would be if Andre is in favor of immigration, I basically caricature his argument. I strawman it by saying, oh, you want a bunch of illegals to come here and murder and rape us? Sounds good. Is that what you want? Yes, I do. So, so no one should be strawmanning arguments in any serious discussion. Steelmanning is the opposite of that. It is presenting the best version of an argument, the most nuanced. Um, and if you if you can if you can tear down a steelman, then you can really be justified in in having um, comfort and and just having that justification that that belief is is not sufficient uh, or is not or is not adequate. Uh, more appropriately. And really what we think is, is the power in a steel man is that we're going to effectively have to argue on behalf of a position we might not necessarily support completely. But this really helps us kind of understand the opposing view a little bit more too, because we actually have to critically think about and deploy some of the arguments that are used to justify things like censorship on Twitter. Exactly. Okay. So let's get into it. Um, you know, we currently have laws that restrict free speech in the U.S., and they have been around since the U.S. was founded, and they have not really been abused um, significantly. I'm sure there have been cases, maybe minor cases, but for the most part, they have not really been abused since the, the founding of the country. Um, and so there's always this argument about slippery slope. And, you know, if you start to restrict free speech, then, you know, where does that lead us? Um, but we already have free speech restrictions. And, and one of the, um, you know, qualifications for restricting free speech would be um, inciting violence. For example, uh, screaming, you know, fire uh, in, a, in a crowded movie theater. Um, there, that's a good reason to restrict uh, free speech. And so I, mean, I would say the first point is we have to look at what happened with Donald Trump. He was, according to Twitter, inciting free speech. Now, should Twitter be making that judgment? That's a good question. I think <laughs> I think the Supreme Court or some sort of courts or maybe a digital Supreme Court should be making that judgment. Um, although it is uh, a private entity, I think, you know, as Andre alluded to earlier, um, platforms like Twitter and Facebook, um, they have reached a point where they, they truly are a, a sort of public square. Um, and so we do need to look at them a little bit differently. Um, I think... I think the first thing we need to establish, though, is let's say if I walk into a restaurant 
the owner of the restaurant has legally the right to kick me out for whatever reason, right? I think this was really kind of embodied by the whole like, oh God, what was the Supreme Court case? It wasn't even a Supreme Court case, but around the bakers refusing cakes to somebody because they're going to have a wedding that the baker might not agree with. In theory, we, st- we support these kinds of things in our country, right? Where if, if I walk into a restaurant and I smell bad, the owner of the restaurant has the right to kick me out. So what makes Twitter, which is a private company, different from the specific restaurant is the real question. Why are we treating them differently? The difference between Twitter and a restaurant is that Twitter has the ability to affect public discourse in in a way that I mean obviously a restaurant can't it it, it it can amplify voices to the point that it can really shape elections I mean and that's what we're talking about you know it, it, it is critical infrastructure for democracy right I mean uh, I think I think you'd have to point to the fact that the Donald Trump campaign basically ran the majority of its public outreach in the 2016 election via Twitter where that's how he got his message across. So it's clearly not just a regular old private business. It still is very much a a way that information is shared and consumed and that's become very relevant in how we drive public discourse in that sense. Sure. So so this kind of, you know, it points at two things. Like one is legally, you know, what's Twitter's right. And right now, you know, I think you know, it's difficult to assess like what's legally um you know, kind of okay to do, but there's a deeper question of like, what should be done? Like, should someone like Donald Trump, who is just, you know, take that assumption that he's inciting, inciting violence, even if you disagree with that uh, assumption, should he be, uh, should he keep his platform on, on Twitter? And I would say based on the current laws, no. If he is inciting violence, he should be banned from Twitter. Like that is a that is a perfectly um, a reasonable thing to do in a society. Um, if the if the president of the United States is, is not accepting a peaceful transfer of power, and there's you know there's no evidence for for voter fraud, and he is he is attempting to incite violence and or maybe some sort of coup attempt. Um, that I mean, how how can we say you know we're not justified in removing this guy if, if someone's a complete whack job, uh, which I do believe Donald Trump is. Um, I think he should be now. Whether Twitter should have that right or there should be some other legal procedure that you know essentially produces the same result, you know that's I think that's a more open question. Um, probably not ideal to have you know, random people at Twitter dictating the, uh, you know, discourse in America. We probably do need something uh, more properly uh, uh, regulated on a legal level. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you're just looking at the current free speech laws, um, I would say it's completely justified to have to have him removed. But I think you made an important distinction there is the fact that there's a difference between Donald Trump and you and how you use Twitter, right? Where I think, I think the differentiating factor there is audience where, I mean, I, I don't know off the top of my head, 
but Donald Trump's follower count was quite high. I'd say it was in the millions. The difference is an average citizen who might have 10 followers, two of them being aunts and uncles. The statement of, oh, we should kill all midgets, right? That statement has different impacts between somebody who has 10. <laughs> you can laugh, man. It's all right. I'm just expressing my views here. No, the statement has different. Fuck, can we say midgets? <laughs> Is that allowed? <laughs> All right, I'm noting uh, 12 minutes and 56 seconds as oh, a potential point of clippage. Oh, anyways, shit, anyways this, that, a statement like that means something different to someone that's hearing it from an individual like Donald Trump or somebody with a high follower account versus somebody that has no followers. And I think that is the point at which regular users differentiate significantly from blue checked established voices on Twitter. I I agree. And I think at a, on a practical level, you know, you cannot, you know, police every bit of speech. Like it's, it's, it's like really just impractical. It's impossible. Um, but yeah, people with a massive audience like the president or some sort of celebrity, you know, if they're promoting some sort of conspiracy, okay, well, maybe conspiracy is not necessarily, uh, you know, something that, uh, we can restrict, but actually that might be a good segue to the next topic here. When it comes to COVID conspiracies, and maybe just conspiracies in general that can pose harm to the public um, if they gain traction, right? Should those things be restricted? Uh, I mean, this is this is a valid question. And I think they should not be restricted by an arbitrary body in Twitter. However, you can think of a scenario, and you may not think COVID is, you know, warrants any sort of restriction. Uh, of, of free speech, any sort of COVID conspiracy, anything against uh, vaccines regarding COVID or vaccines in general. But you could envision a scenario where there is a deadly, deadly disease, something on the order of Ebola, but as contagious as COVID. Uh, and people, and, and let, let's say this, you know, five years uh into the future, this happens. And we had already come up with an mRNA vaccine that would actually adequately address such a virus. You know, we had predicted something like this might, you know, come about and we already have the vaccines and we already have the supply and everything's ready to go. But people are absolutely losing their shit on Twitter. <laughs> as you can imagine, people are losing their minds online. There's conspiracies galore. This is all set up by Bill Gates' son. Like he is, he's got a new conspiracy. Like you, you can drive the conversation to the point where people will legitimately doubt. Like, oh, how did they? Oh, how how did they account for such a virus? You know, coming about naturally. You know, this is bullshit. This is this is a this is what the government wants to do to take control of us. These vaccines have microchips in them. You know, before they couldn't put the microchips and now now we actually have technology so they invented this new virus. You know, how how could they have predicted this? This is how, you know, this is why they had the vaccines ready already. Come on guys, wake up. It's obvious the government is trying 
to control us. So you can imagine all these uh, conspiracies and they can pose massive harm uh, to the public. Um, now, in this scenario, when we have clear evidence that this conspiracy will, I mean, you talk about inciting violence. You know, we're talking about a civilization ending disease. And people are jeopardizing uh, our ability to contain the virus, to address it, and to survive. Um, I mean, that, that, that is, you know, on the same order of inciting violence, as far as I'm concerned. Maybe even worse. I think that the important point to, to underline here is that you're kind of referring to the threat to the public good, right? Where if there is this kind of nightmare pandemic scenario, which I mean, we're in a nightmare pandemic scenario now, but if there is a far more lethal type of virus out there like an Ebola, the lack of accurate fact-based information could lead to, as you described it, like a civilization-ending event, right? But let me ask you this question, though. We've kind of established the difference between a Donald Trump type of account as opposed to like a run-of-the-mill Twitter user account. Would this sort of ban on quote-unquote disinformation, pandemic disinformation, apply to everybody? Or is it just to individuals that have an audience? Does it mean that nobody can question or doubt you know, a narrative that's being given? Yeah, if, if you could develop an algorithm, you know, that would accurately, you know, censor this information, right. then, and if, it's, if it's, and if it's legally justified and it's for the public good, of course, I think I would be for that, but I don't think you can. And so there's a practical limitation, um, you know, to trying to restrict the free speech of people who don't have a massive audience. Right. But these major figures that are driving the conversation, I think you have a duty to do something in, mm -hmm. in, in such a case. Mm -hmm. um, now, I'm not suggesting that... You know, we just restrict people's free speech willy nilly and mm -hmm. that, um, you know, the CEO of Twitter decides who gets a platform or, or not. I think, you know, there does need to be a more carefully thought out form of regulation on um, uh, on these online platforms. And and then there needs to be also a there needs to be an independent independent scientific body, I would say, because. This is a matter of uh, scientific validity, right? Whether the vaccines for this hypothetical virus will work, whether mm -hmm. this virus has a death rate of 10% or 0.1%, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like these are, these are things that we can determine scientifically. And so if we have a independent scientific body that can assess the severity uh, of such a, a virus and the efficacy of any vaccines we can use that as a sort of guide to say, okay, like this has crossed the line and they, they can establish that, you know, if, if someone's asking reasonable questions, you know, the scientific body should be able to look at that and say, you know what, uh, you know, this might not be necessarily accurate, this, this, but this is like a good faith question, right? It's in good faith. But when you have, when you have bad actors, like I would say Donald Trump, who are, 
driving conspiracies and just asking questions in clearly bad faith, um, I think we, we do have a duty to try to limit how that can affect discourse in our country. Um, now, like I said, I think you would have to restrict this to scientific questions. Um, you know, if there was a hypothetical, you know, modern day Iraq war scenario, you this would not fall under that category uh, of a scientific question because it's it's just not a scientific question. Um, but then how would regulation or the question of regulation be extended over to more social issues? If we are talking about more political or geopolitical or strategic questions, what entity would rule if a censorship decision is legal or not, right? Because I don't think you could really have it both ways in that sense, where, okay, occasionally you step in and you and you treat Twitter like a public good, right? You treat it like the town square when it's a question of pandemics and, and accurate information related to vaccination. But then you kind of withdraw in other scenarios and let Twitter behave as a private company. I think the problem, though, is those other types of questions, non-scientific questions. I think you have to limit that to the current free speech laws, like inciting violence. If 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 you have a political issue where Donald Trump, you know, is inciting violence. OK. You know, he's falling under current restrictions, uh, current laws, you know, um, but if he's saying Hillary Clinton, um, I don't know. If, if, if he comes up with some wacky conspiracy theory regarding Hillary Clinton, you cannot restrict, like, you can't really restrict that. There's no laws in place that would allow you to do so. And it's, those kind of questions are way too difficult. They're, they're, they're out of the purview of science, really. <laughs> so even though I don't think it's good for society for <laughs> that to be happening, I don't think there is actually a sufficient mechanism uh, where we can actually decipher whether that's true or not. Like, can you rely on the New York Times to say, you know, that conspiracy about Hillary is true? Well, we tried to rely on the New York Times, you know, during the Iraq war and look, you know, someone can say, well, look where that got us. So I think science is the best truth seeking process that we've that we've ever developed as a as a species. Right. And anything that can be scientifically verified, I think we should try to impose some restrictions. Now, science itself is always about you know, correct self-correction and consistently questioning itself. And no one is implying anyone who's asking any sort of question should be jailed um, or anything like that. Like science, that discourse has to continue as is. And if you're asking questions in a scientific setting, you know, you should not be, you know, in that in that setting, there's no way your speech should be restricted. That would that would be absolutely devastating. Uh, to the entire scientific process. Mm -hmm. But on a platform like Twitter, if you're a major figure and you're just spewing shit out of your mouth, you're telling me we're not reasonable enough as a society to impose some sort of restriction because let's face it, there's a certain percentage of the population which is just, they'll eat anything up and they're just not 
well educated enough to decipher what's true and what's not. That's the reality. Now, you know, I would love to have a better education system where everyone is well informed, well educated, you know, and and we can we don't even need to impose any laws, right? Mm-hmm. People will just they'll be able to figure it out on their own. But we have seen clearly that this is at least currently not the not the situation. So I, I am in favor of some sort of independent scientific body to assess scientific questions. <laughs> Things that fall outside of uh, science, I think you go with the current uh, free speech laws. And if you need to revise the laws for if someone is trying to commit treason, like if you're trying to undermine democracy, like I think that's uh, potentially justification for limiting free speech because democracy itself is so fragile. Um, so we should think carefully about you know, what we can let people get away with. Like, can Donald Trump just casually claim the election stolen, you know, 10 months before the election even starts? Um, things like that. Things that are obviously absurd. Uh, so that's kind of uh, what my views are uh, regarding um, free speech restrictions. Um Regarding some of the current topics, like the the banning of Donald Trump and and COVID conspiracies, anti-vax stuff and whatnot. I think another thing that we do need to discuss, though, um, when we're talking about free speech, we need to weigh the consequences of also not restricting the free speech. Because we clearly see the level of disinformation in society. It's very damaging. It is... um, destroying the cohesiveness of society which will undermine democracy which will allow authoritarians to take power uh so i think it's easy to think about how restrictions on free speech can be abused but you also really have to consider the other side if you don't do anything what happens well like we're seeing kind of the the consequences of that right now with regard to covid um with uh with regard to other uh, i mean i w- i would say there's there's many political topics um that have been poisoned uh by this uh just a plethora of disinformation available online it is drowning the discourse um with just bullshit i mean <laughs> I mean, that's just how what's going on. Uh, So that is having a practical impact. And I I think I think we're seeing that uh, in the fabric of society, because it is it is it is starting to tear apart in in the U.S. I think that's kind of undeniable Um, whether some of that is exaggerated because the online platforms amplify, you know, the extremes, you know, I think our perceptions can be debated to some extent, but I don't think things are heading in the optimal direction, to say the least. And and the final point uh, that I do want to make is the entire premise of like having a government means like, you know, we impose certain restrictions on human behavior uh, so we can have a more functional society. We have laws. We have the police that enforce laws. And that is preferable to anarchy, despite the risk of being abused, because the moment you give any power to a government, that is a slippery slope in and of itself. 
So we're already kind of on the slope and it's about clinging on. I mean, the entire, you know, future of humanity is literally going to be clinging on the slope so you don't slide down further. But up the slope is also chaos. It's fire. So you can't go all the way up and have no uh, kind of, you can't have any restrictions because we've proven as a species that we, we're not like in a, in a kind of anarchy situation. We're not, we're not able to thrive in that. People don't want that. People want a little bit of restriction, a little bit of comfort, because there's such a wide range of uh, human preference and behavior. Uh, and it's kind of like we're catering to the middle of the bell curve in some ways. And I think that's, that's where a lot of the tension lies. So what's the difference, you know, when you apply that notion, when you're talking about the government and human behavior, what's the difference when you apply that to free speech, you know? So, yeah, we, we certainly should have some restrictions. We have to discuss that intelligently. Um, but we should not shy away from necessarily imposing restrictions because there are consequences to doing nothing. And uh, we're kind of living through that right now. That's evolving as we speak. Well said. Enter the reverse steel, man. So I, I think I... I I agree in, in spirit with a lot of what you said, but what is really the issue we're dancing around is, is the fact that at the end of the day, deplatforming, let me take a few steps back. We, we've established this kind of dichotomy, right? We have our run of the mill average Twitter user with five followers, one of whom is his cat. And then we have, uh, a celebrity, somebody in the public eye with a significant base of audience, an audience base. Deep deplatforming somebody with an audience base, I find that is inherently an anti-democratic process. Because we've established that Twitter is a it's a tool. It's no longer a bake shop or a restaurant. It's not an average private business. Twitter inherently plays a role in how we exercise our democratic rights. And the biggest comparison I think I can find with Twitter from a historical context is how television was used in the 1960 election. So that was a consequential election because John F. Kennedy was running against Richard Nixon. And Nixon was, for all intents and purposes, a much more experienced and seasoned politician. But Nixon wasn't able to deliver his message in an effective way over television. And TV was just becoming a prominent tool for relaying information at that time. And Kennedy was very adept at communicating via TV. So the first nationally broadcasted TV debate was actually the Nixon-Kennedy debate. And Kennedy was so much more successful than Nixon because he was able to communicate with audiences across the country. And that really did result in giving Kennedy a competitive edge over Nixon and eventually giving him the boost to win the election. Now, Twitter in many ways is kind of embodying that similar scope of its effect on the democratic process. The politicians that weren't able to effectively use Twitter were kind of crippled when going up against 
as hard as it is to say, a media powerhouse like Donald Trump. His use of Twitter, his ability to communicate to his followers, outreach, you know, pull together support for rallies, really kind of gave him that extra boost to, first of all, wipe the floor in the Republican primaries in 16. But even when he was going up against Hillary Clinton, managed to attract a lot more support. The problem is, is that if you take away somebody's ability to effectively campaign on Twitter, you're basically not letting them implement and leverage a tool that is critical towards the democratic process today. It'd be along the lines of banning Kennedy from going out on TV and debating Nixon. It's, it's a very necessary tool for somebody to be able to wage an effective campaign. So can I clarify something? Go ahead. Do you believe that there is any scenario under which someone can, can be banned? Is there any scenario? And if so, what? Well, scenario? And, and, and I think to this degree, there is something to be said about the guidelines that Twitter has established for inciting violence. Right? I think there is always kind of the, this, this fallacy of reducing somebody to Hitler, right? Well, let's take for a moment and think about how much more effective it could have Hitler been had he had access to Twitter, right? I think in those scenarios, yes, definitely. There needs to be some sort sort of arbitration to prevent somebody from inciting mass violence. I think that is something that we should generally accept as a good. The issue here is that we need to decide who gets to decide on the deplatforming, so to speak. And I think that, Yvonne, you, you, you did accurately bring up the need for some sort of body of arbitration. And we can talk about this uh, towards the latter half of our podcast. But right now, I'd say it's the, it's the wild, wild west, right? We kind of defer to Twitter to write these regulations. Donald Trump was banned off Twitter because of their guidelines. The problem is who's writing these guidelines and who's able to put those guidelines into action. So Twitter has really been kind of grappling with their status in society. I think ever since the 2016 election, of course, you had all the congressional investigations going on around how social media was leveraged. Was there manipulation by foreign powers? That dog is going to be on our podcast. That's great. I'm excited for that. And the problem is that Twitter started hiring outside consultants to really kind of boost their agenda or boost their ability to, to, to manage the flow of information, right? So they had to have a third party entity that could effectively say, this is who you need to be deplatforming, right? And that's kind of concerning. Uh, I, I think that, you know, a good example of this is a few weeks back on December 2nd, Twitter announced that it was partnering with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, the uh, ASPI, ASPI. And ASPI is a think tank that is going to be helping them manage the flow of disinformation, right? This kind of goes into the thought of how does Twitter discern what is factual versus not factual, right? This is kind of the quote unquote experts in the room that you may have been referring to in your piece. The problem is that ASPI is funded by the likes of Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon, Bay Systems, and other entities of the U.S. Defense Department and the industrial complex. So you have weapons manufacturers dumping money into a think tank that's then going and working with a platform like Twitter, which we've established. It's not just a restaurant. And you can't ensure the neutral 
and neutrality, the neutral behavior, the neutrality of an ASPE when it's taking money from organizations that benefit from certain pieces of information being removed from public discourse. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think uh, the way that Twitter has gone about it um, is not really the road that we want to go down. But, and actually, just to clarify, um, that independent body ASPE, um, those are experts, but they're not just addressing scientific questions. So it's not quite what I was alluding to earlier. So there's a, there's a distinction there. I would not be in favor right. um, of a more general yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, body yeah. that just... Your position I, that I, is I, things I, that could be... Uh, things that fall within the purview of the scientific right. community. Yeah. And, and, and I think... what. I, th- I think we're in sync on this, but we need democratically elect- elected leaders um, or democratically elected judges or judges appointed by elected leaders. And this is to, to set up this body that would be kind of overseeing uh, these online platforms. Because, yeah, I trusting Twitter and Facebook to moderate the content and censor willy nilly. Um, this is not the market. Like if that's the, if we agree that they are a public square, essentially, then we, the people are going to have to determine what's allowable. And on I, those platforms. I, 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 not, I, not Mark Zuckerberg or some, yeah. you know, uh, you know, independent body with, uh, just a plethora of conflicts of interest. And I, but I, and I think that that's um, kind of the issue at hand, though, is the fact that you would be politicizing an institution that would have the power of arbitration over the ex- free speech, essentially. You'd be creating, uh, effectively, a censor of sorts within the government. And I think a great frame of reference for this is how we treat the concept of disinformation. Is, you know, you very accurately pointed out that Leading up to the January 6th riots on Capitol Hill, Donald Trump was engaging in ostensibly what was disinformation. He was saying that the election results were false. He was making zany claims about, you know, dead people voting 34 times. I'm talking off the top of my head. We've kind of come to a consensus that that was disinformation and that warrants deplatforming to some extent. Well, he was platformed for inciting violence. Right. Sure. Now, the disinformation contributed to that it contributed and was to part it. of that kind of propaganda right. which warranted but we also don't look at disinformation as it comes from the other side of the political spectrum because for whatever reason that line of disinformation or that rhetorical concept of disinformation has been largely validated to a certain extent and what i'm talking about is the behavior of the democratic party after the election of donald trump in 2016 what was the narrative at the time right the entire i'd say liberal fuck i'm gonna say this the liberal media establishment uh it kind of mobilized to push this narrative that donald trump was not a legitimate candidate he was not a legitimate a legitimately elected president because he was assisted by foreign powers being russia right these claims are made that russia had some sort of p-tape some sort of dirt on donald trump that was manipulating him and that he could not be an effective representation of the democratic base democ- that's it effective representation of democracy because he was an illegitimate figure because he was put in place by the support of a foreign power L- that- let me let me stop you there because there's a difference here 
between the two scenarios and i think it really has to do with the with kind of the legal maybe definition of what constitutes inciting violence um i think what donald trump did you can connect the dots in a very concrete way and make the case that this was inciting violence but he was not deplatformed for merely you know um coming up with some Pizzagate conspiracy against Hillary Clinton. Of course. So, so there's there's a topic, uh, there's the issue of disinformation, and it is poisonous to society, but I certainly wouldn't argue in favor of just censoring disinformation. I, I agree with the current free speech restrictions, uh, with the current laws, and I think the difference here is what Donald Trump did kind of violates what I would say violates the free speech laws and hence he was banned appropriately, even though I don't like kind of the way that Twitter um, went about. I, I don't like giving Twitter the power to do so, but I think the actual re end result was justified. Um, right. But I, I, but, I, th I think the point that you're, you're kind of not necessarily recognizing is the fact that we're, we're discussing the possibility of establishing a democratically elected censor. Right. It would be a group of individuals that reflect. Um, the, I'd say but, the, but what are they censoring, though? That's, the, that, that's what I'm trying to get at. Precisely. And, and I'd say the risk that we pose by having this be a democratically elected body is that they would politicize the nature of their function. Right. They would be censoring based off of political purpose. But so who gave them the power to censor willy nilly? Because I. I'm not making the case that we should give them that power. That's not given to them right now by the Constitution. Right. Uh, in the physical world. Right. And that wouldn't be applicable in the digital world right. unless you pass new laws. We already have democratically elected leaders, so the same problem would apply to free speech laws in the physical world. Right. But we're not having those problems because there's, well, oftentimes there's just a stalemate. Uh, well, it's also I think it's also but, a question of do we have any sort of sensor akin towards what we're talking about for like the physical press? Right. Do we have a sense? We don't. We don't have a, a body that an elected body that inherently regulates what can or cannot be published in The New York Times. We're discussing this because I think that. Twitter is a little bit different from the New York Times in its ability to reach people and its ability how the information is consumed on Twitter and how Twitter is leveraged in the democratic process. Now, I think we are in agreement that there needs to be some sort of um, neutral entity that, that that's separate from the corporate nature of Twitter and maybe separate, what I'm arguing, separate from, from political discourse to make certain determinations. But I guess I'm going to... I just wanted to clarify, I am in agreement with you that we should not give this sort of arbitrary power to Twitter um, to just censor, you know, at their you know, own pleasure, basically. Uh, I think we're, you know, we're absolutely both in agreement right. with that. So I just, I just want to highlight, you know, where we agree and maybe where some of the disagreements right. are. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that one of the most critical expressions of our participation in democracy is our ability to question everything. You, uh, this is definitely, I'd say, a blanket term in some senses. I think that even when it comes to things like vaccines, 
personally, I, I, I support vaccination. I have made the choice to get vaccinated. I just got a booster shot because I want to be able to interact with my family. But I think there is a very important place in our society for people who, who might think a little bit before they get a vaccine or my question it outright, you know, because then we get into conversations around how much money is Pfizer making off of the vaccinations, right? This also applies to things like, you know, the, the blanket statement of believe the science, right? That's kind of been used to smear and, and slander a lot of people who might question the functionality and efficacy of these vaccines is they get silenced by the statement of, you know, believe the science, trust the science. And that was, could be similarly applied to the mid-century, the Tuskegee experiments are going on, right? Where you had portions of our black population injected with syphilis because we're trying to study its exact impacts on society. The thing I'm getting at is that we should always question these things because that is how we isolate and block off tyrannical tendencies in our society. And my question is really, how would we handle something like the Iraq war in today's day and age? I would make the argument, the more open Twitter is, the less likely it would have been that mobilization for Iraq in 2003 would have been, would have been largely unquestioned. In this day and age, I think with current moderation powers on Twitter, I think we'd still have enough of a critical mass of people speaking out against the Iraq war. Maybe it wouldn't even happen. But what happened in 2003? Every single major media outlet got on board. Journalists who maybe weren't necessarily in favorable had their careers ruined. You look at Chris Hayes and, and the New York Times, right? He was fired for, for, for trying to question it. And to a certain degree, Twitter is a tool that keeps our democracy in check to a certain regard. And I agree that it needs a little bit of finessing. We need to figure out a way to prevent things like you know, the Capitol Hill riots from happening, but we run the risk of hobbling a, a institution that empowers democratic expression. I, so I, there's a lot there. Um, <laughs> I think you are, you're overlooking the fact that yet, although that, although Twitter in this day and age with Twitter, I mean, um, you would be less likely to be sort of like fooled as a, as a society by something like the Iraq war. I think you have to ask yourself like, but like, why? Like, what's the actual like process that would lead to that? And it's because there's a complete chaos of information. We would not have enough conviction because there would be so much dispute among the sources. Now, some of it could be good and valid objections, but in general, there's just a bunch of bullshit online. I don't agree with that. And, and I, have a, I have a really clear case okay. study for what happened. All right. I mean, look at the, the George Floyd situation. A lot of the momentum that put pressure on the Minneapolis Police Department to effectively investigate what was going on was the fact that the video of George Floyd being choked out was shared on social media. And it created enough outrage that really, I mean, it pushed people to the streets. And there was so much focus on this that was largely driven. I don't know if the term grassroots is effective or applicable here, but a lot of the outrage and the scrutiny was driven by this information being shared throughout the entire platform. And that, But, but I mean, I agree there's utility in social media platforms to like promote 
you know, certain kinds of social justice. Um, but there's no mechanism that we currently have now, or there's no you know set of laws or uh, that we have now or that. Uh, what am I trying to get at here? Currently, there are no laws that would allow someone to like censor what happened to to George Floyd, right? That video, right? You cannot censor it. So precisely. So I guess I'm not sure what the argument is with the George Floyd video. What I think that's precisely the the fact that we don't have anything in play. We don't have. Yeah, but a, but no one is advocating for censorship. Of course, of uh, of sort of some sort of arbitrary censorship, though. But you, you see what I'm saying? Or at least I'm not. I mean, maybe there's someone out there. What I'm saying is you run the risk of that happening if you do have all of a sudden some sort of entity organized to regulate what can and cannot be expressed over social media. But the entity that I... So if we're talking about what other people might be suggesting, I mean, I agree with you. A, an arbitrary entity that's sort of kind of running the show right. is a bad idea. Right. What I argued for earlier was an independent... A scientific body that would address only scientific questions. And then when it came to general free speech uh, questions, when you talk about topics like political topics, mm -hmm. for example, that only abides by the current laws that we have on uh, restrictions of free speech, which one of them being inciting violence, right? Right. So, but uh, so uh, I, I guess the argument you made here is also the fact that how would you? I, I guess what I'm trying to understand: how do you get like if you have a, a, a body that addresses only scientific questions, and then you have the current free speech restrictions, right? How do you go from that to censoring a George Floyd video? What is the path, and what? And the only thing I'm adding here is this ind independent body. Uh, that kind of dictates what's kind of allowed by major figures uh, driving the conversation on scientific issues. How, how do you get from that to censoring a George Floyd? I think there, but we were also having a conversation over greater regulation of information when it comes to, and maybe I am not reading your argument correctly, but to me it sounded like you were also advocating for an entity that would have a level of control over things like political expression, right? Things like sp specifically, you know, a, a blue check Twitter account, like Donald Trump's advocating that an election was stolen, right? Yeah. So I, I think that one's, uh, I'm not necessarily advocating for a body that would, interfere in that unless something like that you could make the case that it contributes to inciting violence or if you could add a restriction to the current you know uh free speech restrictions um like hey if someone is destabilizing democracy i mean that's a bit open-ended that could probably be abused mm -hmm. but I mean, so is inciting violence to some extent. Like, I mean, you could really, I mean, why couldn't you put destabilizing democracy as a, well, as a form of inciting because violence? I, and, 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 and I think what we're dancing around a bit is that there's clearly a greater problem at hand than just somebody tweeting, right? I mean, what's going on in 
our country, and I'm trying to dodge the term society here, but what's going on in our country that if somebody tweets a statement saying that the results of the election were stolen, why are people believing that? And I think that banning Trump on Twitter was a band-aid solution that dances around the central issue that something is happening in terms of how we consume information without a level of critical thought about it. And to me, this isn't a question of, yeah, okay, it's a free speech issue, but I think the central tenant here is that something is wrong on many levels far below that. And it might come down to something like education, where if we're no longer teaching critical thought in schools, if, if people aren't you know, having enough opportunity as young adults to, to learn how to think critically, of course, they're going to be susceptible towards reading something on Twitter and then organizing themselves to go raid Capitol Hill. And I think that, yes, okay, banning Trump off Twitter is a solution, but I think it's a temporary solution. And I think this comes down to how we fund our schools, how we fund our prospects for getting, you know, university degrees and whatnot. And if education is not accessible, then you're going to have individuals that are swayed by blue checks on Twitter, as opposed to being able to internalize and, and think about what they're reading. And I think that the, the approach to censoring something to deplatforming somebody is the easy way out of this. And it's not going to keep up with the greater systemic issue at hand. And there is going to be a continued abundance of individuals swayed by untrue statements if they're not able to discern what is the truth versus not. No, I, I completely agree. I think that there are deeper systemic issues in our society. Um, and I think, you know, education, like you pointed out, is, is certainly one of them. And I think, you know, I would be in favor of a more educated society with less less laws and just less restrictions, <laughs> period. Like that's that's to me, that's much better. But we're just not <laughs> we're just not anywhere near such a kind of ideal um, and so I do think some sort of censorship when it comes to people that are abusing free speech laws like Donald Trump, like if you're inciting violence, yes, I think you get banned. And you know what? That might piss a lot of people off, but like, that's the law. I mean, that's kind of the law. So if you're breaking it, I mean, I think a point to be made there, too, is that Donald Trump wasn't the only one that was banned on January 8th. In addition to the Donald Trump's account, which was banned using the, the clause of incite to violence, there's also a number of other accounts that were also removed. A lot of these were also left leaning media outlets that used Twitter to communicate with their followers that were maybe advocating for things that weren't quite as supported by mainstream thought. Uh, there's a number of outlets that were covering uh, some of the investigations happening at the OPCW. That would be the organization um, for the prohibition of chemical weapons. Uh, some of these outlets are covering uh, some questions that are being raised around the role of the OPCW in investigating the chemical weapons attacks in Syria that were then used to justify U.S. airstrikes about three years ago. I don't. Really, I'm not well read on this issue. I don't know what the position is, but these outlets were removed because they were sensibly labeled as disinformation. And sure, and 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 I think that that's the distinction that I want to harp on: uh, the difference between inciting violence and a general ambiguous kind of claim of disinformation, which is difficult to verify. 
you know, we have something very clearly defined in our laws. We have, you know, um, legal precedents for something like inciting violence, right? Right. Disinformation. I mean, that's just too ambiguous. But then and how, so do you, I'm not, how do you maintain the? So I'm not, I just want to clarify again, like I'm with you. They should not be banning people for mere disinformation, right? Like that, that, that cannot be enough to justify banning someone. Even if you can verify that they're promoting disinformation. Even so you can, hang like, on. As a fact, like if you can absolutely verify that, okay, this was clearly disinformation. I don't think someone should be banned for that unless we're talking about the scientific but then we need issue. to get back to the crux of the issue we're, we're really getting at is how do we ensure that twitter is only banning people that are engaging in you know inciting violence well, versus banning somebody I, they may perceive as disinformation I, I think you have to go to court you have to establish that these platforms are a public square right and then you, you can only apply the laws as stated in the Constitution, like as 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 the laws are applied in the physical world, you can only apply them to Twitter in the same way. Like, you but what has happened? To, what can, has happened to information while you're going through the courts? Right. If, let's say if Twitter, if somebody speaks out against U.S. support for the war in Yemen, right, that person gets removed off Twitter, which has happened. That person files suit, goes to this, you know, court that say there's a specifically organized court that handles these questions of censorship versus not. That's a process, right? Sure. Courts move slow, but the information remains censored at that time. And that means the information isn't getting out. So I, I think I agree with you. The only caveat to that, I think it should be on Twitter in this case to make the case that they need to censor something before that court, before it is censored, right? Because that piece of information of somebody writing up like their findings about the U.S. support for the war in Yemen, that could be critical information to, again, the public's understanding of a conflict. So that needs to remain out there. And then Twitter needs to get the permission, I'd say, of this higher court in order to ban something. I agree with that. I I think that it would have to be... That would have to be the case. So I think that's kind of the point yeah. of agreement that we have here is, is that they're clearly getting free speech right is critical to the democratic process, be it eliminating views that might be inciting violence, might be guiding people towards partaking in anti-democratic behaviors that damage our society. Maybe it's also in this theoretical apocalyptic pandemic state. Uh, it's also taking away voices that are preventing effective vaccination campaigns from rolling around. And we're not saying it's this particular pandemic. This is kind of the theoretical one we've established. There needs to be some sort of entity that is able to somehow peruse the mass amounts of information that we have out there and ensure that what is being removed from discourse should not, in fact, be in discourse while making sure that voices are still empowered to, to express their, their views as they see fit. Sure. And, and, you know, just going back to, you know, that scientific body, um, you know, people shouldn't be in jail for, for things like this. We're talking about, (laughs) we're talking about removing them, uh, you know, from these platforms so that they're not reaching, you know, a ton of people and, you know, distorting the accurate scientific narrative. 
of course, science is self-correcting and it should continue to self-correct and what they say one day will change and that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that's evidence for people saying random shit. So that's something a lot of people get confused about. Oh, they changed their mind on this. Yeah, that's what scientists do, right? But they did it thoughtfully. They went through the process. We they, hope they did. They weren't sitting. Yeah, right. You hope they did. But other scientists will discover they did. As long as we don't want to curate the scientific process, we want to let it be what it is. But we cannot have people sitting on their couch or in their basement dictating or, or, or coming up with conspiracies and thinking that uh, that they know better than, you know— you know, all the scientists, all the epidemiologists and immunologists are saying one thing, but you, you sitting in your basement, you figured this one thing out that no one else did. If you did, you know what? Go, go, go write a paper, do research. You, these mechanisms should always be available for well, anyone to question I, I, anything. I, I think that if somebody is sitting in their Twitter, basement, they don't necessarily have the reach of no, but they Donald don't. They, but you, okay, that's true. But they have to go through the process, the scientific process. And if their claim is correct, if they're truly that one in a, you know, million, if it's the one in a million scenario that they're, you know, them being the catch potato or whatever, they actually are right, and all the scientists are wrong. There still should be an avenue for someone to get their voice out there in terms of uh, the scientific process in terms of the scientific field okay go go do your research present this idea whatever and then if it's a good idea you know it gets peer-reviewed it gets published in a journal other scientists look at it and they're like oh shit this guy was right and this starts to become the predominant view in science and that would be a process but we can't have people randomly saying shit online about a pandemic about vaccines when they know absolutely nothing well I, I i think i think the difference is is that people should be able to say whatever the fuck are we allowed to swear on this podcast yes whatever the fuck absolutely. they want oh we've been really professional before this we were kind of <laughs> keeping it laced up you know i think that as long as you're not somebody that has a platform right right you should be able to say whatever you want right yeah someone with 20 followers they can say what no one like we don't we don't even have practically the means to address that we're talking about someone who's doing legitimate harm and this would be i mean this would have to be brought up to the scientific independent scientific body whatever and they would have to you know make the assessment um that this is, you know, crossing the line. Uh, but yeah, it, it would, it would, in a practical sense, be limited to people with massive followings that are affecting the narrative. And, 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 and in a similar way, it's like if Hannity or I don't even know who's on Fox News anymore. If somebody like that that was being broadcasted, you know, to hundreds of thousands of living rooms across the country was saying these things, then yes, okay. This is where we'd have that arbitrary body coming in and and figuring out, are these claims damaging towards counter-pandemic efforts? But if it comes down to you or I, who've got a podcast with a net following of zero, we should be able to say these things because we don't effectively have any harm. Of course, and and, and there's other, you know, things that can be done. You know, YouTube demonetizes people. Um, There's different ways to kind of try to impede uh, 
scientific disinformation during a pandemic. Uh, I think that's key. I think it's a key point here in a pandemic in 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 an extraordinary circumstance because if there's nothing happening, if we've reached a utopia and people want to say wacky shit, I mean, it's not really harming anyone. Well, there's um, clearly it, a di- it, there's there's a different circumstances for information sharing. You know, if you think back to World War II and how information was shared within the United States, then it's markedly different than how media behaved before and after the war, right? Where you couldn't go out and talk about troop movements or something like that because there's, in theory, could sabotage the war effort. I think in a similar, but that has to be a limited acknowledged blip in time, right? Right now we're in a pandemic. Let's say in this futuristic nightmare pandemic scenario we've created, that is an extraordinary circumstance that requires a little bit additional control on how platform individuals can spread information, right? It, and, and the idea is that that would be a temporary arrangement, which in theory would then cease to exist when the pandemic has been figured out, right? And I don't know much about where we're at in terms of fighting COVID, but in theory, if everybody would get vaccinated, you know, we move forward with things, we'd be out of this uh, scenario. Um, so... Yeah, I think um, I, I think having some sort of independent scientific body, I think during critical moments uh, in critical moments in history, I mean, really, is, is I think it's going to be a necessity with with the age of information that we're in. Um, because, like I said, there, there there are consequences to doing nothing. Even though uh, these powers can be abused, and we should be very careful, and we should really also, we should try to look at people and see, okay, is this in bad faith or is this in good faith? Like, someone like Donald Trump is so blatantly acting in bad faith, right, that, you know... I wouldn't feel too bad if he was um, if we were a little bit more lenient on or relaxed on how easily we ban someone like him, like ban the pieces of shit that are clearly doing things in bad faith. Now, I think it's very I think it's a high bar to clear to say someone's acting in bad faith. It should be a high bar. Yeah. Someone like Donald Trump, man, like maybe I'm just really biased, but he seems to clear the bar, even that high bar very easily. Well, but that's the thing is, I, I think the bar has to be high because equal standards have to be applied regardless of how you might be perceived politically. Sure. Just sure. because he's, he's an atrocious individual that we may not agree with does not mean that he shouldn't be treated in the same way that a, I mean, I, I dislike both parties, but, and I, but I think everybody should have an equal I thought, base. I thought you were a Democrat. Oh, dude, no, fuck Democrats. Fuck Joe Biden. Let's go Brandon. Um, I, I lean left. I'm, I'm pretty far on the left. And I've been, cons- I, you know, this is outside of the purview of what we're talking about, but I firmly believe that there is only one political party. They all scratch each other backs. Anyways, the conclusion I'm trying to get to is that yes, there needs to be a bar, but the bar needs to be very high and it needs to be a very difficult process to deplatform somebody. 
Absolutely. And, and we absolutely agree on that. And I think we have to be very careful um, in imposing any additional laws, even creating something that I think is, for the most part, like pretty benign, an independent scientific body. I think like it's very, by its nature, it would be very restricted to like the things that it can touch and the things that it could do. But even that, like, let's get the best minds together. Let's come up with a good way to do this. Um, and let's set the bar high for any sort of action. Because, yes, absolutely, these things can be abused. They have been in the past. We have, you know, many examples throughout history where these sort of powers are abused. Um, but we also, I think, we can't just idly sit by and let technology um, kind of evolve or devolve society into utter chaos, utter confusion, uh, because I think doing nothing also could, could lead to a pretty dark path. So we're on a slope, you know, maybe we've slid a little bit. We may slid, slide a little bit more, but we might still be in pretty good territory as long as we don't slide too much. So that's kind of how I'm looking at it. You know, um, I steel man the argument for, you know, more restrictions, more censorship. But I mean, I don't know. I'm I, it, These things are so easily abused. Like you have to be super careful. I, I don't know what the ideal way to approach this is, but um, I think whatever we do, we have to be incredibly careful. Uh, that is certain.